Welcome to episode 31 of Highly Logical. We are a podcast, as always, dedicated to discussing Star Trek and breaking it down by the issues it addresses. I'm Angelo. I'm Nicole. Hi. We're back for another double episode, looking at uh, episodes 5 and 6 of Star Trek Picard. Uh, we're first going to talk about, of course, uh, Season 1, Episode 5, Stardust City Rag, directed by our good friend Jonathan Frakes and uh, our Voyager writer, uh, Kristen Baer. Written by her, right? Written by, yes. She's a writer. She wrote Voyager novels. She wrote this episode. And I think she's one of the showrunners. She's, at the very least, a producer as well. She's on the heavily card. involved, as she should be. Go, Kristen. Secondly, we'll be talking about The Impossible Box, Season 1, Episode 6 of Picard, uh, directed by... Maja Vervilo, I believe. Okay, Maja Vervilo, written by Nick Zayas, uh, which aired... Today. Today. We're, we're actually so doing this. Current. We're doing this on time for once. We yeah, thought we because, would treat you. Yeah, we're doing it on time because we didn't do last week's on time. Right, we're, we're doing, doing it together. late slash on time. Listen, if you gave us money, maybe we'd do this once a week, okay? Uh, but anyways, let's kick it to you. Uh, what are we going to be talking about this week? We are going to be thinking about all sorts of things that we often think about. Uh, <laughs> but specifically, we're going to be thinking about, this is me as I'm looking for my notes, uh, <laughs> violence in Star Trek because it's really come up this one, yeah. in this episode, the first episode in particular. We're going to be thinking about the tradition of lowbrow Star Trek episodes <laughs> and do we like Star Trek when it's lowbrow, or do we not? Spoiler, we like it. Uh, <laughs> addiction issues in Star Trek. Uh, and finally, trauma, because it has come up quite a bit in these two episodes, mm-hmm. as it tends to do when we are dealing with the Borg. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicole, would you like to summarize our first episode for us? Oh, well, so many things happened, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> but we start out... Okay, at last week, just... To briefly recap, we did meet Seven of Nine. We this did. This was last week. Uh, and then she passed out, and that was it. So here, we're getting her flashback. Um, we see a Borg being very viciously, violently, gorily uh, torn apart by some scientist um, with, like, some bitch in black leather gloves. Uh, and it's pretty horrific, and especially so for Star Trek. Um, I don't really mind seeing violence in general. Like, it's not like I have a visceral reaction to it, but it just, I question the, I question it. I question why it would be there, and we're going to talk more about that later. But anyways, turns out this is Icheb. Uh, All the doctors get shot. Seven of Nine busts in. She's like, oh my god, Icheb. And he's like, please kill me. And she does it. Um, Because he's been torn apart, basically. And his, presumably, all the Borg implants that have been removed from him, which, um they were, uh, is going to mean that he's going to not be able to live. I think this is contrasting maybe with uh, the reclamation cube, which is kind of gently removing things yeah. from Borg to, to keep them alive, whereas this procedure is no good. So jump to the present. Uh, La Sirena is arriving at Free Cloud. Uh, Rafi discovers that Maddox is being held prisoner by some dame, Bajazel, who intends to sell him to the Tal Shiar. Uh, this bejazel, uh, looks an awful lot like Troy, or... Slash Angelica Houston. Slash Angelica Houston, slash, uh, Loxana Troy. Mm-hmm. I don't know, there's a lot of something going on there. Um, so the crew, uh, decide 
that they're going to try and save Maddox by staging a prisoner exchange, which is suggested by Seven of Nine. And uh, she basically tells them that, like, this bejazel, she loves Borg parts, she wants to get them all from any Borg uh, in the most violent way possible, and she, Seven of Nine, with the most Borg implants, like, retained in her body and, like, her whole, all these organs and skeletal systems, etc., they're all Borg, so she's super valuable uh, to be the, like, exchange bait. So they go through with this plan, but Jaisal recognizes Seven of Nine, and everybody's like, oh dear, like, this is odd. So she drops her charade, uh, which is, like, the second charade that's going on, because they're, of course, trying to trick Bejazel in the first place. Anyways, Seven reveals her true intention, which is to kill Bejazel in order to have some of that sweet-ass revenge uh, against the brutal murder of Ichab. Picard, of course, is like, please don't kill. This is all about revenge. Let's not do that. Like, you're a badass, you know, saver hero. You don't need to murder for, you know, vengeance. Um, and so she kind of listens to him, maybe. Uh, they recover Maddox. Everything looks pretty great. But then Seven's like, no, nah, fuck that. I'm going to kill Bejazel. He doesn't know what he's talking about. She's dead. Uh, and she is. She's dead. After beaming off all of yeah, the she people beams in the bar. Off. Yeah, they, she's very nice to them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's lovely. Um, then uh, we jump to sick bay where Maddox is, you know, weak and frail. Uh, he tells Picard what he knows about little twins, um, saying he sent them to Earth and to the artifact to discover the true motivation behind the synthetics band, because as we know, it's so mysterious. Um, after he, you know, leaves them alone, uh, Dr. Agnes, uh, who's, you know, we've seen her have this, like, hologram memory, trip down memory lane of, She's like, baking them cookies. baking cookies together. Ugh, Not a good scene. They're just, like, kind of gross together. Yeah. Uh, anyways. She's, you know, clearly very distraught, but she kills Maddox. Um, and she kind of says stuff like, oh, if only you'd seen what I'd seen. But I wish they hadn't shown me, but they did. Which I think is all kind of referencing that whole Jat Vash thing, because yeah. it's sort of like this hidden secret, and then once you learn it, it's like, oh my god, it's so dark. And I think that's what she's referring to. But anyway, she kills Maddox, so... Uh, she even tells the hologram to dip so that he doesn't witness it, which yeah. is great. Um, Dirk. Anyway, Rafi also, meanwhile, um, is, like, going off doing her own thing. Uh, she tries to reconnect with her estranged son. It's completely random. We have not heard of this son before, uh, but she, you know, there he is. Um, he, he's like, Mom, you know, I, I've been in Booksmart. It's not the best job. It wasn't the greatest role but I'm doing better without you and your drug use and lack of concern for the family, etc. Anyway, very random. Um, out steps his wife, who's expecting a child, who, and this is a Romulan woman, um, it, who doesn't speak. There's just no speaking from this woman. She just makes an appearance. <sighs> Rafi's all like, oh, it's so nice to meet you. But, um... Yeah, she's totally rejected. She goes back to the Serena, and she's the stowaway, and there's kind of a sweet moment where Picard's like, oh, you... And she's... I, I'm not even saying words anymore, am I? Uh, they have a nice moment, and that's the episode. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
So, I suppose I could summarize this new episode, which we just watched about an hour ago. Yeah, it was good. So, where to begin? Um... (laughs) A lot happens. A lot happens. This this episode feels like it's actually handling a lot of the plot that's kind of been stalling for the mm-hmm. past few episodes while yeah. they've been... All the stuff of... that's been marinating is being, like, let out to steam. Yeah, this is the one where it's, like, how to how to get to ten... Ep- like, the previous ones were, like, how to drag it out to ten episodes. This one is, like, okay, how to handle two episodes worth of plot in one. <laughs> uh, so Picard, to start, asks Raffi to sweet-talk her old friend, I believe, who's... Mm-hmm. Uh, a Starfleet captain, I believe, if I recognized her pips correctly, so. uh, to give Starfleet uh, Federation clearance, I should say, to Picard in order to uh, beam aboard the Borg reclamation site so that he can have a meeting with the leader, who he says is a familiar face. Of course, we know that that means Hugh. Hugh! Uh, Raffi does this successfully, but first she has to take a couple of hits of bourbon or whatever she's drinking, and some snake leaf. Yeah. Uh, but she does that. She has her meeting. She does a great job, and then it kind of wipes her out, uh, and Rio ends up taking care of her afterward because they have a long history together, and he knows all about her substance abuse issues and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So there are some subsequent scenes of the two of them kind of hanging out in her quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of Rios, Agnes and Rios are having a little bit of a fling, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit better, we thought, I think, than the endless scenes, uh, which were sort of oh, referenced Lord. today, the endless scenes of Soji and Narek. Oh, Lord, yes. I just want to read a quote from uh, Narek's sister, who says at one point uh, that his plan, Narek's plan, is basically endlessly fidgeting with her until she pops open, like, that stupid box. As she said that, I was like, yeah, that's a great summation of what's been going on in the Narek and Soji scenes <laughs> for the past five episodes. But oh I digress. God. I digress. <laughs> uh, so Rios is taking care of her, and then Rios also gets involved with Agnes. Although, there's a part of me that wondered, like, is that really Rios, or is it one of the many holograms? Because there are a lot of them, and she had a previous scene with the hologram when yes. she deactivated him. Yeah, I honestly think there's something going on there where either, like, Rios has, like, multiple personalities, yeah. or they're all, like, there's, like, three holograms, or there's just, like, a million holograms. Some weird Something's hologram shit is going on. And know? there was that moment where, I don't know, when Rios sort of dismissed the hologram, he's, he calls him just an image, and he's like, just an image, and he gets upset. So mm. I, I do think, I don't have proof of it, but I suspect that, um, there's a hint that maybe the the hologram, or maybe the Rios that she's hooking up with is not, in fact, the Rios who's hanging out with Rafi. Mm. Uh, but, mm-hmm. again, I digress. There's a lot of digression in this episode. Meanwhile... Are holograms bangable? That's what we're all tr- dying know. to know. If Robert Picardo has taught us anything, yes, <laughs> they are. Uh, but I digress. <laughs> uh, on the board cube, guess what? Narek and Soji are back. <laughs> Uh, they were blissfully left out of the previous episode, and we were pretty happy oh, about that. God, that I think was because so well deserved rest. The, pre- the episode before that did plenty with them, I think, and they're mm-hmm. sort of frolicking in the hallways. Now they're frolicking under the covers again. What a surprise! Uh, after she wakes up from a nightmare of her as a child, uh, creeping down the hallway, seemingly seeing her father in a lab behind some orchids, and then waking up abruptly when uh, she screamed at. So. With a little bit of encouragement from his sister-slash-lover, his sister-lover, if you will, <laughs> uh, Narc decides, you know, the moment has arrived, I'm going to walk her through her dreams in order to try to extract the information about where Soji is from. 
So, oh, that's our cat sneezing in the background, She's if you've heard that. Cold. Our little cat Dax has a cold. Um, so he basically uses, like, the Romulan talking cure. That's essentially what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through that Romulan talking cure... A favorite cure, of Dr. Phil. That's right, yeah, that's what Dr. Phil uses on his many victims. Uh, she uncovers this dark memory of being past just seeing the orchids and her father turning around, but actually looking at his workbench, which contains... And, and actually kind of good image, I think. Uh, a doppelganger doll, basically. Like a wooden Pinocchio-style yes, doll Pinocchio of Soji, Soji. Lying on the table, bisected into segments. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, and she also sees this indicator of her possible home world. Yes, he uh, which, asks her. He asks her to look up into the skylight of the lab. That's right. And she says, I see two blood-red moons and, like, this electrical storm. Yes, which we'll, we'll get into the possible ramifications of that. Um, this, unfortunately, is proof for Narak. He seems disappointed, and this is actually a pretty good moment, I think, for Harry Treadway, I think the actor is named. Uh, one of his better moments is Narak. He, a kind of switch gets flicked, and he's like, yeah, you know what, her memories are implants, she's not real. I've been dating and hanging out with a replicant, basically, from Blade Runner. Um, and so he, he flips on her as expected, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he locks her into the room at this point after telling her that she's not real. He leaves that little box he's been fidgeting with on the yeah, table, which seems to be this... activating after he's left. Yeah, this Rubik's Cube. Uh, and he then goes full Kylo Romulan, as we've been calling him, <laughs> and he looks very tortured as he leaves the room as the radiation starts, radiation starts coming out of that box. But then... Soji is activated. Soji becomes John Wick. Activated! Uh, and she starts ripping through the floor. Oh, it's awesome. Destroying it. It's actually quite awesome. I love the way she just, like, it's so fast, too. She's just like, oh, well, I have to beat through the floor, clearly. Yeah. It's very, it's quite realistic, I think. Uh, like, you know, living beings have this fight-or-flight response that we yeah. can't really control, and that just kind of really does activate in a very high-stress situation, so... Why not androids? Yeah. Why and not and androids? It, it, she played it well. It was great. And yeah. watching somebody tear through the floor and jump in was good fun. Um, <laughs> so she tears through the floor, and she falls down several floors where she meets Picard and Hugh. And I should say about Soji, uh, we might have a time to get to this a little bit later if we have time to talk about her, but... Uh, they seem to be sort of gambling on the audience's awareness that, like, Soji and Dodge both are ciphers. They are kind of flat characters. They don't have a lot of interest. They don't have a lot of substance to them. That's deliberately a note that they are playing in this episode, right? That Soji is flat and is a cipher because Soji's memories are implants. Soji's feelings are implants. This is the moment where, like, Soji is activated... And now she's able to, you know, presumably develop a character or a personality. Vaguely interesting on the face of it, I think, but I'd be curious to see if they actually can develop her up to this point, or if she remains a cipher after being activated as, like, a, a living, thinking being. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, uh, she meets Picard and Hugh, as I was saying. Picard has been having major traumatic flashbacks to his time as Locutus in this episode. This is the first time he's been on a board cube since then, I think. Yeah, maybe I, one of the first. I was sort of trying to fact check this in my mind with first contact, but 
I think in First Contact, it's the Enterprise that sort of becomes a, mm-hmm. a Borg drone ship, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the engineering bay becomes the kind of central command for the Borg Queen, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember it super well. But I mean, I, regardless, it's going to be traumatic. You go to the, yeah. basically, the site of your trauma. Yeah. Especially when, in, in the case of Borg, you know, they have this hive mind, so literally anything they see is part of your memory in some way, so yeah. any Borg cube is going to look identical. Anyhow. Yes. I'm just vamping now. Yes. My whole job on this show is vamping. That is that is precisely our job. Our notes always have a bunch of text for Angelo, and then just for me, it's vamp. <laughs> I'm the one who prepares the structure of our notes, and I, I whenever Nicole has a, a part, I just write vamp. Um, <laughs> so Picard learns a little bit about the Borg, who actually help him. He's like having a traumatic moment and he's about to fall off one of those famous Borg catwalks mm-hmm. uh, when he's sort of held held up by Borg uh, drone, ex-Borg drones that he was afraid of previously uh, and in that moment uh, Hugh intercedes and says they're actually helping you, they're not trying to harm you. Uh, he lets him know that Hugh is sort of the leader of this XB society, ex-Borgs uh, there's a kind of a nice moment where he says, like, he learned some things about identity uh, and naming from the Enterprise, and presumably that's a reference to Geordi helping to name him. He says they're, they're victims, not monsters underneath, and this is part of the work he's trying to advance. Before, he ends up saying some weird stuff about, like, they're all, they're all, they've been broken free of their slavery, but now they're slaves again to a Romulan queen. Very strange moment. Yeah. Um, but that's essentially what happens in this episode. All of our main players are finally together, with the exception of Riker and Troy, who may or may not be main players. Oh, I suspect God, they're come. they're probably cameo players. But uh, Picard has finally met the other twin daughter of Data. We met Maddox in the previous episode, who was immediately killed. Yeah. And and looked like Jordan Peterson before it happened, as Nicole pointed out. Yes. Uh, they we, flew all the way to Russia. They got Jordan Peterson. Yeah. They threw him onto the set of Star Trek. Picard. And then his daughter killed him. Just and like then his daughter just killed like him. in real life. I'm just sorry. like in real life. Please don't sue us, Peterson. Oh, except family. Agnes Girardi is his lover, not his daughter. Yes, his but lover. then again, the show is doing incest. So I also it's a trend, really right? strongly suspect, based on a throwaway line where uh, Maddox says to her that her contribution yeah. to Dodge and Soji was essential. Yeah, she's like a parent or something. There's something going on genetically with Agnes. I'm sure there's yeah. some kind of mystery there. Uh, whether she's another one of Data's daughters or whether she's the actual parent of, of Soji and Dodge, we will see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured we should start by thinking about this XB business since it's kind of the big addition of lore in this episode, and I don't mean, like, lore, Data's brother lore, but uh, in terms of, like, world-building, this is the biggest thing we got this week. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we liked aspects of it, like, we liked what it was saying about identity starting with name and about reclamation, right? Like, this is the most we've seen of the actual, like, Borg reclamation project from the perspective of the Borg. They've Mm -hmm. reclaimed an identity for themselves as victims of this mass colonial enterprise of what the Borg have been doing. Uh, What do we make of it? Is it an interesting kind of expression of this post-traumatic identity that's, you know, they're celebrating themselves, they're, they're freeing one another, they're kind of developing a consciousness? What do we think of it? Well, I think... I think it's awesome. I think it's what... It's kind of what we've been expecting from the start of the show and it's delivering in this whole um, meeting between 
Picard and Hugh. It's really sweet. It pulled at my heartstrings. In a way, Discovery never even came close to. I'm always going to compare this to Discovery, by the way. It's just not possible not to because, you know, they both came out in the 2010s, you could say, and one is a train wreck. I'll let you guess which. Um, Actually, Picard is in the 2020s, I'll have you know. Oh, yeah, that's true. Fuck. Think about it. God, I'm old. Um, Anyways, uh, Hugh was great. I really liked all of the things he was saying. I thought it was so sweet to call back to his naming and and how he got his name from Jordy. I don't actually remember the moment. I think it had something to do with him saying, like, you and I, and then it went from you to Hugh. I think there was some kind of wordplay like that. Anyway, it was super cute. It's the same actor, just, like, my heart is all a flutter from it. I really liked the moment of him saying, you know, like, they're trying to help you, and the Borg are literally holding him up because he's, like, going to fall over because he's so stressed out. It's just all very sweet. It felt very real. It felt like two survivors of something bonding over it. Like, it felt like they were aware of something that others weren't aware of and that they were, you know, it it just felt, like, very true. Uh, Based on my own experiences with, like, fellow trauma survivors and the way we talk to each other, it just felt very true. There's also something that was nice about hearing him say, you know, oh, the XBs, and explain to Picard, like, that's what we call ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have this community. We have this shared identity. Uh, and, like, his moment where he's talking about being named, it just felt a little connected to that. Like, we have a name, like, all of us. We're not just synths. We're not just mm-hmm. Borg. There's something different about us. There's something that unites all of us. We're and XBs. He, he connects it to... Picard being named Lokitas, right? Which, I've always been a bit curious. Like, why does Picard get a name when he's a drone? But uh, Hugh deliberately sort of associates the XB as a chosen designation with Locutus as a given designation, right? Mm -hmm. He says to him, you're not Locutus here. That was long ago. He he tries to center Mm -hmm. him as if, like, he's recognizing someone having a panic attack. Yeah. And he's saying, like, that happened, but it's not now. You're not what they made you. You're not in that place. And that's, like, a common strategy for talking through a panic attack with somebody is mm-hmm. is placing them and, and situating them and making them aware of the space they're in. And that happens a lot in these scenes. Even in that scene where he's saying, like, the Borg are holding you. You know, he's somewhere else. And Hugh is consistently and subtly reminding him where he is and, like, what time he's in and, and like, that he's safe. And I felt like it was all very, very well done. Um, I like the bit where he says, like, it's nice to see a familiar face, right? There's there's mm-hmm. a kind of, it's obviously a bit of a, not exactly an in-joke, but a reference to the fact that we know Hugh, and that's sort of how his appearances have been working for us on the show, right? He's yes. anchoring us to TNG. Yeah. But also, like, yeah, when you're in times of trauma and you're in places that sort of root you back to the place where you almost died or you had horrible things happen to you, it is nice to have a familiar face to guide mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was all very lovely. Um, what do we make of the... Like, there's a lot of trauma content here, it seems to me. This episode really focused on it with, re- with respect to Picard having flashbacks and kind of really sort of accepting something nice in being ex-Borg for the first time, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's looking at the people being healed of their implants and saying, like, you're doing something good for them yeah. because you're allowing them to sort of claim a new identity as victims rather yeah. than as monsters, which is how they're seen. There's also a conversation in the previous episode between Picard and Seven 
where they're talking about having to kind of really fight to reclaim their humanity, and Seven says something to the effect of, like, it's something I have to work for every day. Mm-hmm. And Picard sort of says, yeah, me too. You know, like, even though yeah, I was only a Borg for a short period, it's like a lifetime process of kind mm-hmm. of reclaiming your humanity. Yeah, and it's sort of like, I think they also have a moment, a conversation where she says, you know... Uh, do you think you have your humanity back? He says, mm-hmm. yes, like, with no hesitation. She says, all of it, and he says, no. And I think that, as hokey as that slightly was, I think that's also very true to it, you mm-hmm. know? Like, um, after many years post-trauma, you are you can call yourself healed, but there's always a part that isn't. Mm -hmm. And even like, you know, in this particular moment right now, as I'm doing my podcast with my my lovely Angelo co-host here, uh, with my cat sneezing at my side, you know, I'm very, I'm I'm healed. But there are moments when I'm not. And this is true of all trauma survivors. Um, And so all of this, you know, even in its cheesy moments, I think it's all working together nicely. It's thoughtful, you know, thoughtful is... Nice to see. Um, also, um, there was something I was going to say about Hugh, but now I'm forgetting it. Um, yeah, there was something I liked about, or I, I like it actually in both of these episodes. I like that we're seeing, like, listen, we all love Picard and feel like he's a leader and a hero and all that. But, like, I love that in this show, Picard is still learning from his you know, friends and from the people he's working with. Um, He kind of learns, he seems to be learning about his trauma and what he hasn't dealt with through Seven of Nine, where she's like, I'm fighting every day to get myself back, you know? Like, I'm dealing with it. And, And for him, it's kind of like a realization of like, you know, I'm not dealing with it every day, but it is there. Um, And then with Hugh, it's like, oh, and this is how you can... You know, this is how you can use what you've gone through for good. Like, Hugh is taking what happened to him and, like, using that knowledge yeah. and that good experience that he had being reclaimed uh, with Jordy as, like, a way to do it for others. And mm-hmm. I think, like, he, like, Picard seems to really learn from that and appreciate it, and he's, like, absorbing it. He's like, oh, this is a way. This yeah. is a, a a form of reclaiming... Uh, what happened to you in a positive way, as, like, Seven of Nine is doing. I like that the show is trying to represent it differently and show different examples of it. You know, even with that other, the Romulan who has the panic attack in that room and, like, attacks Soji, like, there are so many... and, And we've talked about this phenomenon in general, but when shows or when entertainment or media in general throw, like, all their cards against the wall, some of them are gonna stick. And I think that it's good that this show is throwing so many cards against the wall if it's trying to deal with this sort of theme of Mm -hmm. trauma. I guess that's where I've landed in between these two episodes. I more or less agree with you. The one reservation I have is, um, the way that it was presented in the previous episode, um, when my Stardust City rag, there's something in that conversation that felt like rang a little hollow with the characterization of Seven. Like it was a bit surface level. Yeah, there's not enough characterization of Seven, period, I think. And, like, I kind of like... I like Seven as, like, Texas Ranger. I like Seven as this maintainer of order following the collapse of the and neutral zone. Probably I buy gay. It. Probably gay. And probably gay. I buy will, it. 
we'll get you. I think almost certainly by right. Like that seems to be the. Oh God. I wouldn't even call it a suggestion. It's more like it is the text, but they don't use the they don't use the term. Uh, that's yes. the only uh, you know. But it's the the amount of gay energy yeah. in that fucking room was hopping wild. Like yeah. So the reservation I have is that I don't know that we actually see Seven like struggling to reconcile her past as a drone member with this future that she is currently in. I just feel like. They make her a kind of swaggering, uh, western type, like Walker, Texas Ranger. Again, I keep going there. I'm sorry. I don't know why. Uh, Why I keep going to this character. Uh, But they do that, and then they sort of imply that she has all of this, like, Borg drone baggage that she has to decompress every day. The same way that in Discovery, I'm forgetting her name now, Arian, was that her name? Arian. 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 Arian is not the name. Uh, Oh, dear. Arium has to sort of dump her memories every day just to live. I think the suggestion here, right, is that this is what trauma is like as well. You have to kind of do the wipe of the bad memories in order to function, in order to survive. Mm-hmm. We we get a brief moment early in the episode where Seven sort of speaks of being functional as opposed to good, mm-hmm. and I think that was a nice callback, but otherwise yes. I think they, they maybe went a little too far in making her super functional and super swaggery yeah. uh, for a character who, you know, really was a very severe trauma victim for a long time, yeah. to the point where when we last saw her 15 years ago, is that about right? She was quite different, right? So the progression is is has advanced quite a lot, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, you know, I, I more or less agree with your saying. Uh, before we sort of move back to that episode, which we've kind of get, gotten into a little bit, Nicole has been going hog wild, googling various theories about the potential for where Soji uh, is from. So I just wanted to throw to you. Here. I mean, I, it's not that I've been Googling theories. It's more like I'm really curious about where they're going with it. And this show is really into, um, leaving little mysteries that are plot mysteries, but also like mysteries for Star Trek fans, like th- saying things that Star Trek fans will recognize, um, and be excited about. And so I feel like this ending, uh, so for those of you who are watching who feel that you have not been spoiled and don't wish to be spoiled, I will talk about the ending of the episode that just aired a few hours ago. Um, yes. Um, oh God, who's the incest sister's name? What's the incest sister? Rizzo? Rizzo. Lieutenant Rizzo? Yeah, H. the Izzo. H. Anyways, um, yeah, Rizzo. She... While listening to the conversation that Narek and Soji are having, uh, where he is trying to pull that information from the dream out of her, uh, she's listening to the part where he, where uh, Soji says that she looks up in the skylight after uh, Narek asks her to, uh, and she says, you know, I see these two blood-red moons and this uh, lightning in the sky. And so... Rizzo is like, oh, good work, Narek. I'm going to look up where this planet is. I need to find out where these two blood red moons and constant lightning uh, or electrical storms are going on. Mm-hmm. So that got me really curious because I'm sure, I mean, and this is Star Trek, so of course we all have, but I know I've heard of two moons on a planet before. I've heard of electrical storms on a planet before, and I was like, what? Could they be talking about a planet we've heard of? Um... So I've got a few different ideas. Um, 
my one my one very gentle theory is that Ryza has two minutes. <laughs> and we haven't really heard about Ryza very much in the new show or in Discovery, have we? Oh, don't yeah, I think Discovery it came is, up in Discovery. But that's like so many years ago. It came before. up at some point. It's a different timeline. It, on Picard, though? I don't know. I think it was mentioned in one of the new treks, but I'm forgetting, forget, feel, forgetting which one. I feel like it was Discovery. I think so, too. I think it was a joke in when they go to Kronos, someone is talking about being on Ryza, if I'm mm. not mistaken. Yeah. Well, anyways, in the new one, we don't know the status of Ryza. So, Ryza, Two yeah. Moons, Homeworld of Soji and Dodge, find out next week. My other, uh, other potential theories. Uh, so, some other weak ones. Uh, in DS9, there's an episode called Starship Down. Uh, they land, I think, on this Gamma Quadrant class J planet uh, with two moons. Uh, so, you know, distant possibility, Gamma Quadrant. Maybe they had to go far into the Gamma Quadrant to do it. I don't know. I'm just talking out of my ass here. Um, Enterprise has several mentions of planets with two moons. It kind of makes sense because Enterprise is about first charting, you know, the galaxy for the first time. Um, there's a gas giant with two moons. There's uh, an episode called Anar, which in which I think they go to a moon, um, which is in orbit of a presumed Romulan-held world. And listen, I don't, I don't think I've seen this episode, so I think maybe we should catch up and talk about it in the future. Although maybe they'll reveal everything next episode and we won't have to. But um, I found that interesting. Uh, there's like some drone launch base there. Uh, I don't know if maybe this was the Borg episode of Enterprise. I don't, I don't think remember. so. Anyway, something there. It's curious. Um, DS9, Time's Orphan. Uh, Molly is sent through this weird time traveling thing. Uh, and ages a bunch elsewhere away from her parents, um, uh, O'Brien and Keiko. And when she comes back, she has all these drawings, uh, that she does of where she's been. And it's called, it's this planet called Golana, which has two moons, two moons. Um, final theories. Uh, I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, did you talk about the orchids yet? Oh no, I didn't talk about the orchids. I'm talking about the moons right now. We'll get to the orchids. <laughs> Um, so, other theories, Romulus has two moons. I, I like I that theory, I think that's in some ways, if, if it is a place we know, I think that's the most I, likely. I think so. Just because but, of the twin stuff and the Romulan well, I, I, stuff. Here's the thing, though, I, I thought of that first, mm -hmm. but when the sister said, you know, I need to find out which yeah. planet has two blood red moons that and constant electrical storms, yeah. <laughs> I, so I was like, it can't be that, because if it was, then she would recognize it, or, you know, think it was that, or something, but... My other theory is that many planets have two moons, so perhaps she's thinking, oh, well, Romulus doesn't have electrical storms, or Romulus is gone, right? Yeah. And so it can't be Romulus, but maybe maybe it was Romulus mm -hmm. ages and ages ago. Or maybe it's, you know, Romulus during the attack, and, like, the electrical storms are a byproduct of the attack. So, yeah, that's possibly my most... Coherent theory. Another uncoherent theory. Talos Four has two moons. Uh, this is the planet where those weird Talosians are from. In the cage, uh, the mind reader guys, um, and they've always been mysterious and weird. So why not? Mm. Um, the other option, which is my least favorite, <laughs> is Pavo from Discovery. Mm -hmm. Also has two moons. That's the weird like tuning fork, uh, turning Saru into you know a 
maniac and sentient hive mind plant ecosystem place. There are two moons there. I just want to say, this is the most anyone has talked about that episode since it aired. (laughs) I'm I'm certain that that has not come up before. So true. Um, Okay. So yeah, those are my moon theories. There are many. Romulus is probably the best one. Um, I personally think that Talos would be fun, but, you know, who knows how they could possibly work that in. Um, I have another theory, which is related to the orchids in her dream. So... This is mostly just observation, but I, I, while watching it, I was like, I know that there's been orchids in Star Trek, and I refreshed my memory, and of course, it's Voyager, uh, Tuvok and Neelix, of the many things that these two brothers have in common. Uh, they both breed orchids. This is something Neelix points out at some point. Uh, and there is an episode uh, of Voyager, one of our favorites, uh, in which the crew discovers a planet of many different species of orchids, one of which is, according to uh, Memory Alpha, described as symbiogenetic. And it is the cause of the transporter malfunction that merges the genomes of Tuvok and Neelix to create Tuvix. Folks, if you are looking for a research assistant, look no further. I am an excellent researcher. Nicole. I will find everything about the thing. She's skilled. What can I yeah. say? Yeah, I did this in like five minutes after like a whole shit ton of weed. So <laughs> if I can do that, I can do anything. Um, but we... yeah, I really liked that. Pos- I like that. I-, I don't know if it's a connection or a theory really, but it's more just like this little connection there where there there there's an episode where two um, beings are merged into one and we have this mystery surrounding these orchids um, which Dodge also talks about, right? Like, early in the, in the season. Um, and in that case, it's, like, two of the same, but separate. And so there's some kind of mirroring going on there, and I don't know if that's just a sort of thematic bit of imagery or if that's actually something that's gonna come to fruition in the plot. I don't know, but I really... I, I found this episode quite rich with Star Trek uh, text, so I guess that's my little spiel on that. I think my... Um, Long spiel. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my thinking on it is that it could be that a lot of it is sort of hinting and referencing at things that we know without necessarily planning to develop it. But yeah. we don't know that for sure. It could be could be something. Mm-hmm. could be something. Could um, be. So let's go back to the previous episode. Uh, we, we went back and forth on this one. Uh, mm-hmm. This one has... I'm I'm referring to Stardust City Rag, by the way. This one has a lot of kind of online complaints. Uh, It's choppy, they say, which I agree with completely. Very strangely assembled. It resembles Star Wars more than Star Trek. Absolutely agree. Most of the episode takes place basically on Mos Eisley. Let's be honest, it's 100% riffing on Mos Eisley and the various uh, gilded prequel cities that we see. Uh, Coruscant and uh, the one in the sequel trilogy, the casino planet that they go to in Last Jedi, uh, Cantobite, I think. There's a lot. I'm of Star- sorry, Star Wars. but Star Trek has the Royale. Okay, Star Trek it has Dabo Girls it does. and Quark's Bar. It does. And it does. Hollow programs and all kinds of shit. Okay, Vic I'm Fontaine. I'm so sorry to tell you that. Listen, Quark's Bar is also a little bit most Eisley esque. I'm just saying. That's all good and well. There's also Cloud City. That's the one I was seeking. That this, like, free cloud really, really feels like it's referencing Bespin. Oh, God. 
I don't know. To me, it seems quite obvious. Yeah, it's obvious. Um, but, but despite <laughs> the fact that it is derivative in a lot of ways, I think we both kind of liked this episode in different ways. I liked it a little more than Angelo, I think. Yeah, I I was turned off. I have to say, I was turned off by the cold open. One, I was turned on. The, <laughs> the, the immediate <laughs> brutalization of Echeb. That was to horrible, me, yeah. It, it was kind of just like, okay, if you're going to do horror, that's fine, but like you're really bringing up some eugenics-adjacent imagery in a kind of tacky way. And, like, yeah. but I think maybe if, if this is their way of shitting on the actor who previously played Echeb for being, like, a mega yeah. asshole now, This okay. is not the way to do it, though. No, it's weird. It just, it's, it's, it was a bizarre thing. And also, like, as I've said before, with this show in particular, like, I don't know whose memory wherever... Like, I don't know why we're seeing a flashback to Seven of Nine experiencing this if she's a guest character on the show. Like, is she telling this story? Is she reliving it? It's not really clear what that is. And then we get this subsequent scene with Bejazel and Maddox, which is like, who the fuck is Bejazel? Why does she look like Troy? Why is Maddox a different actor and he looks like Jordan Peterson? I love Bejazel. I love that Maddox looks like Jordan Peterson. I mean, it, there's something kind of funny about it, but structurally it was like, why are there two separate cold opens in this cold open with characters who are new to the series? Y'all, this episode is like a solid 5 out of 10 Star Trek episode. Yeah, that's where I was going How with exciting this. is that? Versus Discovery, a general 0 out of 10 show. How nice is it to have a 5 out of 10 Star Trek episode featuring Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard, featuring fucking Jerry Ryan as fucking 7 of fucking 9. Like, how awesome is it? And and to your it's point awesome. with 7 of 9, right? Just, like, Yes. Uh, so, so we were going to say that we were Yay. we were thinking as we were watching it, it really feels like some of the B episodes of Voyager and also a lot of the season one TNG, like body horror, conspiratorial, bad admirals and like secret bugs. Just over the top, top pimp hat on Rios. Yeah. Uh, this alien with bad makeup who's like, uh, among other things, I can smell it. Yeah, I can smell and like, it was. Oh, he can smell what you had for breakfast this morning. I'm Smoky. sorry, I loved it. I know everybody hates it. I loved it. I love the use of costumes. There's actually an effort to kind of think about what it's a campy, and campy, campy it's club campy. Might look like. This is the campiest episode of Star Trek I've seen in ages. Yeah. You know, like, there's camp. Okay. I miss camp. Can we, speaking of, of camp and, and your frequent interjections about the, the <laughs> queer um, components of this story. I think we should just dive into that. Yes. Seven of Nine, confirmed queer, I think, in this episode. Gay. I mean, listen, here's the thing, though. You have to say that they're gay, TV people. You just have to say it. You yeah. have to at this point. It would be a lovely world if, if, if really and truly you could just subtly introduce something, like a romantic beat in a, in, a, in a couple of characters, and have that be them being gay. But the world we live in is one that assumes heterosexuality always. And when we last left Seven of Nine, she was with Chakotay. And now she's got this bejazel girl. And unless you're explicit about the romance, I can't trust you enough to say that it's gay. Of course I'm going to say it's gay because, like, I I will make everything gay. I will pretend everything is gay, um, regardless of what you have to say about it. However, if you actually want it to truly, like, realistically and not in my fantasy imagination be gay, then you need to say it's gay. And they didn't say it's gay. They just yeah. fucking, like, you know... I have a history with her. They just, like, it was just... It felt so gay. 
It was. It felt so gay. And like they didn't say gay. Just say gay. Just say gay. Yeah. Or bi. Or just say I was in a relationship with her. Or you know I know her intimately. Like say it more explicitly than mm-hmm. just very vaguely hinting at them knowing each other. Like right. I and she know. says there are hints right when she says like I'm gonna give her the one thing she wants most of all, which is me. And like oh. the, the ambiguity though is is like kind of a ch- is cheap. It seems right yeah. because she does literally want her parts. But, like, that being some... said, if I had watched that line like 10 years ago, it would have fucking altered my personal development, you know? Yeah. I have something that she wants. <laughs> Me. Um, <laughs> that was Nicole growling, in case you <laughs> couldn't make out that guttural sound. So sorry. Um, should we edit that out? <laughs> no, uh, I think we should leave it. Um, the thing about it that I think struck me as limited, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about what's good about it, because I think Voy- the Voyager writers have spoken before about considering making Seven of Nine queer, right? And mm-hmm. then they inexplicably decided to pair her off with Chakotay instead. I don't think it was inexplicable entirely. She, I think they thought about doing something with her and Janeway, mm-hmm. and then they had such a shitty personal relationship, yeah. the two actresses, that they just didn't want to do it. They also Which were, I think is maybe fair. There was also clearly a maternal relationship. Yeah, there. I think so. But connected to that, right, there's kind of a maternal... Hey, rela- listen, there's some queer relationships with some maternal shit going on. Well, and this Fucking one... Fucking men can't have all of the, <laughs> you know, the daddy fun. This one is connected to that as well, right? Because there's a suggestion that... Seven feels exploited by her, right? And yes. she was a kind yeah. of mm-hmm. adoptive, protective figure toward her. Yeah. Who exploited her and abused her and then turned on her. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I feel like it would have made it more... Like, I understand the problematic side of explicitly identifying that as a queer relationship, right? Because then there's the potential that it, it becomes a homophobic thing, right? That, like... Uh, this woman is, like, sexually exploiting her and preying upon her or something. I don't know. I don't know if that's homophobic, though. Listen, I'm part of the queer community. There's lots of abusive Mm -hmm. people who are queer out there or people or just, I should say, queer people who have done abusive things. Mm -hmm. And listen, like, the the, the trade-off of of having that be explicit and and risking her being this, like, predatory gay lesbian is that we can have Seven of Nine be just, like, a good, queer, you know, badass bitch. Why not? I also like, like, if they had been more explicit about it, there would have been something interesting about this, like, interrupted and blown up queer family unit, right? Where Seven is kind of a mother figure to Icheb. Yeah. They're a chosen family. And then comes along Bejazel. Who becomes the part of the chosen family. Maternal lesbian lover, right? Like, it's it's complicated. It's, it's like, expansive. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. There are shades of, like, that relationship, I think, that are interesting, that yeah. would get more interesting if they had named it and actually talked about what yeah. was happening. Yeah, and, and here's the other thing, too. Like, it, again, in in some alternate world, if this were Discovery and I was watching it, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, that's ruined and it's over. But I do have some semblance of faith, as much as they keep shoving Narak and Soji down my throats against my will. Um, as much as that, I do have faith in the showrunners and the writers that they may do something with it. I, you know, I don't have a lot of faith because I just don't generally have faith in people depicting queerness in a way that I appreciate. 
Um, it happens, but rarely. Uh, but I do have some faith that it's it's possible. So I am holding out for the possibility that they will explore that, that we'll get to see, like, a flashback to, like, domestic mommy-mommy sunny days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, um, it's gay. That's, I think, the final point we can draw from all and it, it is nice that they are taking a canonical character that is a big deal to you know queer star trek fans and actually i think like complicating their identity or, or giving them like that's part of the shading of seven presumably right yeah. is that seven is seven kind of has this delayed coming of age over the course yes. of voyager right she's mm-hmm. coming back to being a human so i think there is something nice about giving her sexuality and making her queer retroactively kind of suggesting that that's part of her development over the Mm. intervening years but again it just feels kind of like it's coupled with the chicken shittiness of not saying that that's what she is yeah i mean that's listen all of us gays are fucking used to that Uh nothing new that was nicole slamming her water bottle on the edge of the couch (laughs) just in case you couldn't i'm angry uh let's talk about the violence um michael shaban has been very active online in talking about the violence of this episode and this series. Uh, And the way he phrased his response suggests to me that he actually is not a big fan of the violence in this episode either, and that he sort of felt like um, he had to, I don't know, appease some of the other creative parties. So I'll I'll read you a little bit of what he said. He said, I am not unambivalent about the violence myself. The choice was not made lightly. The choice, he's referring to the violence against Icheb that opens the episode. Though it was made collaboratively, and therefore with a good deal of conversation and debate among the creators, i.e., it was not really my first choice. (laughs) And so I assure you, he says, that it is not there simply because we can, as some people implied, or because we are trying, as you somewhat uncharitably put it, to be in. This is him responding to Instagram comments. Mm. My partners would all have their own reasons for its presence in the story, blah, 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 as some of us had our own reasons for shying away from it. For me, he says, it came down to this. There has always been violence and even torture in Star Trek. Sometimes that violence has been implicit, sometimes explicit, uh, according to the natures of censorship, the nature of the situation being depicted, etc., etc. Basically, he's saying, violence is a thing. It exists in the world. It exists in Star Trek. Torture exists in the world and in Star Trek. So why not depict it if it is a thing? This is not super convincing to me, and I, to me, I really do think, like, I get what he's trying to say, but I don't think it holds. Like, it, mm. to me, it does feel like, oh, we're able to do R-rated stuff, we can say shit and fuck and rip body parts out of characters that are kind of yeah. meaningless to us. He's basically being fridged, right? Like, the same yes. way that uh, women are so often fridged in order to, killed off uh, in this really... Uh, you know, not terribly chari- charitable way in order to give Seven a little bit of yeah. trauma and backstory. Yes, and here's the thing I've always been frustrated by when it comes to this sort of argument. It's that, like, you know, oh, violence happens in the world and torture happens in the world, so we should depict it. And, uh, like, on the one hand, I completely and totally agree. I, I feel very strongly about this in another situation, which is having rape depicted on fi- in film and television. I think that... We have to talk about rape in film and television because it's still a reality. We can't just erase it and be like, oh, but, like, if we pretend it's not there and if we don't depict it in TV, it's not going to happen because, no, that's not the fucking situation we're in. Yeah. Every fucking minute somebody's getting raped out there. Something like that is the statistic. I, like, listen, we need to depict it. And so I feel 
I can extend that exact feeling I have to, you know, torture where people have experienced that and uh, eugenic experiments, which people have experienced. But there is a difference between relishing in the content of the brutality, uh, in the physicality of the brutality versus relishing in the emotion of it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. there's relishing in the physicality of it. This is like a horror movie version of what torture looks like. This is like when you're going to a horror film, you're going to see Hostel 2, you're going to, you know, you're going to fucking get some brains blown up, but this is not what mm-hmm. this is. This is a show that's supposed to be about, you know, exploring the galaxy, exploring humanity and, non-humanity and like the relationship between humanity and non-humanity and in this particular show synthetic and and non-synthetic life and so if you want to depict this it's like what is the purpose of the extreme violence what what does it serve um it doesn't serve to make me sympathize really because it's just too grotesque to even share in what he's going through Mm -hmm. we don't get like, his point of view. It's like we're getting the yeah. surgeon's point of view, in a way. Yes. <laughs> and, because, like, he, like she is relishing in the act. Yeah. And, and then, because of that, like, we are being given images to relish. Like, that's how it's presented. And that is, I think, like, I, like I don't respond to that, is my feeling about it. Um, maybe other people do. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's very Star Trek. I think in, in, in a Star Trek show, we're invested in what it feels like to be, mm-hmm. you know, in that position rather than what it feels like to watch it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I hear you. It, it just, it's not working for me. And it didn't work for me when Elnor, you know, murdered the black senator either. Yeah. Which is how I'm always going to refer to him because there's a black senator who he yeah. fucking beheaded. Did he, he behead him? He beheaded him, yeah, after warning him uh, that you know, he's choosing his own death. Um, yeah, to me, I, I hear what you're saying about showrunners defending rape scenes in TV or, or directors defending unnecessary rape scenes in movies. And I, I do think it operates in a similar way where, it, like, that argument has played its way out already, right? That, like... Yeah. Well, the thing existed, so we have to depict it as like, yes. well, that doesn't make, that doesn't say anything about your aesthetic choices in the depiction. Yes. It doesn't say you anything. You chose to do it that way. Yeah, it you doesn't. You chose to show it that way. Yeah. Right? Like. And like, disabled people have been experimented upon. Yes. And like, different marginalized people have been experimented upon. I don't know necessarily that Echeb scans as a disabled person, but I look at his implants and I do sort of read him as a cyborg disabled person. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard not to go to yeah, thinking about, like, Nazis, which is effectively what yes. Bejazel is, right? She's like a Nazi bounty hunter, effectively. Yeah, a Nazi scientist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's why I think it's just... I think it's important to think about how... You know, it's not necessarily about the brutality of the violence, really. It's about, like, which perspective on it you're giving. And how casually how is it How casually rated. is it done? You know, what else are you showing us about whoever is experiencing the violence yeah. other than the violence? Like, if it's violence for violence's sake, it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, um, I think about, like... 
Okay, this is like a really fucking weird example, but it's just, it feels kind of perfect to me. The film Irreversible, Mm -hmm. the rape scene in that movie is unnecessary. I I hate it. I think it's ridiculous. It's, oh my god, it just, like, it's, it's perverse. On the other hand, Degrassi has a rape scene uh, of Paige, and it was an incredibly important episode for many young girls, many young women, many Canadians, uh, but also Americans, because it was one of our, you know, cultural crossovers to America. Mm-hmm. Good morning, America. Um, anyhow, it, it, it actually showed us Paige being assaulted by this man, but then, but it was from her point of view, we heard her voice, we saw the trauma she went through after, we saw all the trauma, but it's portrayed with her in mind. And I realized that here it's, you know, they're kind of saying fuck you to the actor who played Icheb, but the character Icheb was not that. And it's weird to say that. It's weird to defend a character played by someone else, but it's like, this is a different actor. Mm-hmm. And this is a character who means something to a character we do love. So is it fair to kind of just show nothing of them really other than torture it Mm -hmm. just doesn't feel right it doesn't feel interesting it doesn't feel it doesn't even feel like i don't know like like if they're trying to get me to feel sorry for him that's not what it's doing either it's not succeeding it's pretty blatant what they're doing they're giving her tragic backstory and a reason to kill her ex-lover yeah who sexually exploited her yeah in order to harvest her parts, right? Like, it's actually quite disturbing. And I don't think it's given quite the weight that I think it should have. Yeah, yeah. Like, again, the dynamic, if you introduce that they were in a romantic relationship and that they were partners, it makes it actually much more disturbing, I think, which is why I think the hedging is bullshitty in the end. Yes, yeah. And, you know, this is... That is our cat emerging from her box condo, by the way. Yeah, and activating all her toys like (laughs) Soji. Um... (laughs) But yeah, and and I think the whole episode kind of is, is an interesting, um, like it's interesting to look at it in the context of the whole episode because the episode really does, as we've discussed, read like a good, bad, fun episode of, you know, an old Star Trek. They're all playing different characters. Yes. They're putting on a show. Pic- uh, Patrick Stewart gets to do a bad yeah. French accent again. All that is going on. And, and... I, what I want to know is, like, why is that setting the one in which you want to introduce it with this horrific violence that we should be disturbed by instead Mm of titillated by to start the episode, which is, like, a fun romp, you know? Like, it just, it it doesn't all mesh together. I just think, like, regardless of what Michael Chabon has said about like, we're not just doing it because we can. That's what's happening, right? And we've seen it in other examples as well, where characters are swearing for no good reason. I, I'm not a prude. I don't care about swearing. I fucking swear all the time. Oh, my God. But like How the, many times have we sworn 
Let's do a mashup, a master cut of all our swears on this podcast. I'm so sorry. Please continue. There's a conspicuousness to the swearing in the show. The yeah. same way that there's a conspicuousness whenever Agnes is saying like her various millennial expressions. Like oh. when she says, because that's not disturbing. When someone's, uh, I think Rios is talking about whether you're, the last person you slept with is also the last thing you ate. She says, because that's not disturbing. It, it, it just feels like this show is going out of its way to be like, we're hip and we're fresh and we're new. And I'm sorry, well, like, you can make the argument that you don't think the show is doing that, but I would make the argument back that the show is obviously doing that. <laughs> um, we promised we would talk a little bit about addiction. These past two episodes um, try to get into Rafi's character as a result, not just of her ad- struggles with addiction, uh, but also, like, the way that that's connected to her possibly conspiratorial and probably accurate feelings about the synth attack on Mars being a Starfleet conspiracy that, like, deliberately sidelined her, and so on and so forth. What do we make of it? Because there were, I think there were, like, moments in this this current episode that were interesting when we see her as, like, a function, functional user who is able to kind of perform well in certain situations, but there's a lot of maintenance behind the scenes to get yes. her there. Yeah. At the same time, I'm very, very uncomfortable with the the way that her drug use is sort of connected to her race, I think. Yes, yeah. Uh, and her class status. Like, there's something there. Like, it's using references that, like, white people are going to, like, feel implicitly bad about the scenario that Rafi is in. And they're yeah. going to make assumptions about how it dovetails with her race and her class yeah. status in a way that, like, I feel like it doesn't have the goods for yes. the images that it's recycling. Yeah, and and I think something that we kind of instinctively responded to when we watched it was that, like, she's being depicted as if she's a crack user. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the best thing to put into what she was, you know... Like, it's implied that the drug she's using is some kind of smokable. Yeah. You know, if she's vaping it, it's probably smokable. But, like... I don't know. And it's, like, snake leaf. Like... It just feels like it's more connected to weed or, like, even shrooms or some other more organic... I don't think they've quite figured out... Yes, they haven't figured out what drugs ...stimulating or depressive yeah. properties the drug has yes. because it seems to function in different ways yes, for and her. Yes, I, and I do think that that's a failing because yeah. this is Star Trek where we love, you know... Like, some of us like the more history lore of it. Some of us like the, like, nitty-gritty scientific explanations like symbiogenetic orchids that... Mm blend the genomes of different species together. Um, we like that shit. So I would like to know more about this fucking thing she's smoking. You know, like, maybe one of them wants to know more about it and they look it up so we can see it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's, like, you know, crack or heroin, which, like, they're playing with those tropes and I don't love it because in the last episode where we saw her with Picard, she really just seemed like an isolated lonely, slightly paranoid, mm-hmm. antisocial, maybe a bit lazy stoner, which I've seen a lot of, you yeah. know, which is perfectly fine to depict. Like, I don't know. It just, I think that it's just not fully developed in their minds, maybe, as I some think, of the other plots. And I think they're they're playing with fire and they need to think about it. You know, yeah. like, 
Um, I think there's some good stuff there. Like you said, her functional, non-functional moments, I think, are interesting. It's interesting to see her... And that's a lot her... thanks to the performance, right? Like yeah, that's she's sort doing of, that's, good. That's a performance yeah. of competence while using that I, I struck me as realistic. Yeah, it was very good. Um, and there's... The other thing that really bugged me was her whole interaction with Gabe in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it just came out of fucking nowhere. And I, they kind of retroactively explained it in this episode that, like, she doesn't talk about her son, you know? But, like, there was just something... I don't know. There was something really basic about it. And something about, like... <sighs> the fact that the Romulan didn't get to speak... The Romulan being the Romulan uh, partner. No, 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 not Elnor. The Romulan partner of Gabe. Oh, right. She's just sort of in the background. She's She's just, she just emerges with a pregnant belly. Is she Romulan or Vulcan? No, she's Romulan. She's She's fucking Romulan. I thought, I, I, listen, y'all, I watched this episode. I clocked her as Romulan. I looked it up online. People were saying she was Vulcan. So I started thinking she was Vulcan, but she's not Vulcan. She's Romulan. Hmm. I'm telling you, she's Romulan. Okay. I have no strong opinions on this. I have a strong opinion because I feel like maybe they're hinting at a future exploration of the idea that, you know, Raffi herself had some uh, prejudicial feelings toward the Romulans, maybe. Maybe. Or some weird... There's not a lot of background there. No, but there's... Yeah. All right. Right. No, I think you're right. You're right. She's making the suggestion that that it's like a, a Romulan hit job against themselves, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think... Especially with Gabe's, like, conversation about how, like, he didn't matter and, like, mm. you know, the Romulans, blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, her paranoia about it. That conversation yeah. made me think that there's some, like, deeper contacts than just her being an addict. Yeah. Um, I, didn't, I didn't mean to dismiss the point. I was, I was saying, like, the way that that scene is staged to me yeah. felt like there was not a lot of depth. In oh, no, there definitely the isn't. Partner. Certainly isn't. Yeah. And, like, wow, that boy-girl facility. Talk about hetero as fuck. Which, this sort of speaks to, I think, what we're saying about, like, the way that the show throws out a lot of ideas that are kind of interesting, but doesn't really delve into them that well, so... Yeah, I think that's what I like about this show. (laughs) Actually, I think you hit the nail on the head. It throws a lot of stuff at the wall, and a lot of it doesn't stick. Yeah. But a lot of it... But some of it sticks, and sometimes you're surprised by what sticks. And that's what I love... In Star Trek in general. I, I, I enjoyed that 5 out of 10 episode and this more recent episode, which was quite a bit better. I agree, although I I didn't love the, like, I don't know, there's something going on in the way that that, that scene is staged. Like, you were pointing out that the there's some really clear color coding and, like, the, the birthing center has, like, blue rooms and pink rooms and yeah. there's something very hetero about the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, like, it's aesthetic without follow-through. So it's, like, okay... That's a world. Like, what does it mean that that facility is also located on free cloud? And how does it interact with this economy that delivers ads to what's going on in your mind, right? Like, how do these things work together in a meaningful and interesting way? I frankly have no idea. I don't and, know either, yeah. but, like, I'm excited about it, mm-hmm. at least. What excited about us about Discovery? The Spore Drive, and then that was like, oh, whatever. And I, then I don't disagree. The, the Tardigrade, oh, whatever, mm-hmm. let's, do, let's throw that out. I just, as always, I just want things to be a little bit better. A little bit better. Well, until they hire you, it's not going to get better. So you're just going to have to deal with what's there. 
babe. Okay. <laughs> On that note, I think that's a wrap, folks. Uh, as we had always, a lot to say this time. We had a lot to say. As always, if you like us, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. If you really like us, five stars on iTunes would be pretty good, I think. If you like us a lot, but sometimes you think I talk and vamp too much, four stars is adequate as well. Four stars is not adequate, and such a person does not exist. They would not be listening, period, if they felt that. And if that's the case... You know, we don't want them anyway. Uh, <laughs> please listen to our friends in the That Shelf podcast network. And please visit us at That Shelf and also read some articles on That Shelf who have graciously decided to host uh, our podcast in their network. Bless y'all. Uh, where can you find us, Nicole? You can find us on various places. You can find Lo- Highly Logical on Twitter, at LogicalPod. You can find Angelo here on Twitter, uh, fucking... 150 characters or less genius over here. Um, A. Moretta. Myself, uh, I am on Twitter. You can find me there. Nikki underscore P, I think. God, I don't know. Um, not very great on Twitter. I'll mostly be retweeting, retweeting cat videos and getting into occasional, uh, you know, 2 a.m. Uh, ill-conceived Twitter threads. Um, but mostly I'm on Instagram. Nikki underscore P. You'll see my drawings. Uh, check out my uh, Star Trek cat caricatures. Yeah, if you like Jordy and Guinan and I didn't Picard. post Guinan. Should have done it. Still I time. Tashi R. Yeah. Still time. All right. Until next time, folks. Remember, as Picard says of the Borg before he enlightens him, they don't change; they metastasize. They metastasize.